in the Bible, Jesus is identified by many names. The Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, our strength, our healer, our provider, our protector, our redeemer, our friend. And thank God for all those names because the list goes on and on throughout the scriptures. And of course, every single one of those names is true. And yet there's one name that makes all the others possible, at least in our lives personally. And that is the name King of Kings. Because if Jesus is not a king to us, then he cannot be any of those other names to us. You understand, Jesus is not going to be a part of your life if he cannot rule over all of your life. Why? Why is that? It's because he doesn't want a part of you. Jesus wants all of you. And nothing less than that will do. You see, God didn't plan your life long before you were born, right before the foundations of the world, and then form you in your mother's womb, and then send his only son to die for you so that he could satisfy some portion of your life. And yet a lot of people treat him that way as a provider or healer or protector or friend without ever recognizing him as their king without ever truly knowing him for who he actually is. In fact, when he describes that final judgment day in the gospel according to Matthew, he leaves no middle ground when it comes to the kingship of Christ in your life. Either you're completely under his rule or you've completely rejected his rule. See, there's no middle ground, even for the most religious, the most spiritual people. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I never knew you. You understand what Jesus wants more than anything is to know you. And it's not so much that people don't want to know Jesus back. We just want to know him on our own terms. We want Jesus as a part of our lives more than we want him ruling over all of our lives. And often I think we're more interested in what he can do than in who he is. Just ask someone who's a believer, a Christian, who is Jesus to you? You will most often get answers along the lines of, well, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my provider. Jesus is my healer. Jesus, he's my savior. Jesus is my protector. Jesus is the one who gives me peace. Of course, we all want that Jesus, which is not wrong, by the way. But notice every one of those descriptions focuses on what he does rather than who he is. What you won't very often hear when you ask a Christian the question, who is Jesus to you? You won't very often hear someone say, Jesus is my king. And of course, if you truly do recognize him as your king, then that claim can be easily validated by simply looking at how you live your life every single day. Because if you recognize Jesus as your king, then your entire life is submitted to him. 
Otherwise, you can, you can surely recognize him as many things in your life, but not as a king. Right? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Doing the will of the Father is a function of knowing Jesus. You see, if we honestly recognize Jesus as our king, then our lives will reflect his kingship. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you'll be perfect or the perfect Christian by any stretch, but it does mean there will be no part of your life that is off limits to him because you've submitted all of it under his rule in your life, okay? So to say that Jesus is my peace, Jesus is my protection, Jesus is my strength, Jesus is my provider, those descriptions are all wonderful and true, but they say nothing of our own lives in relationship to him other than the fact that he does great things for us. Yet when you say, Jesus is my king, well, then you are announcing to the world that your life is submitted to his because of who he is. And so, yes, it's important. Surely it is important to recognize all that he does. But how much more important for us to recognize who he is, which is why when Jesus returns to this earth, there is only one name that the Bible says will be written on his thigh, according to Revelation 19. And it isn't peace giver. It isn't healer. It isn't protector. It isn't provider. And it is not friend. No, there's only one name that is inscribed on his own body. And that is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why? Because that's who he is. It's so important that we recognize that, not just what he does, but who he is. It's his true identity that we must recognize in our own lives. This is why when Jesus was walking with his followers after asking them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He asked them then what he really wanted to know. But who do you say that I am? You see, Jesus wants us to know him. Not just what he does, but who he is. And so Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Mark 8, 27 through 30. Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. In the ancient Greek, it's the word Christos. It means anointed one or chosen one. In other words... This Jesus was the one chosen, anointed by the Father as the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords over his people. Right? Our deliverer as ordained before the foundations of the world. And it was on this very confession of his true identity of who Jesus is that he said he would build his church. This is why it's so important that we not only recognize what he does for us, but who he actually is over us. It's why he asks the question, who do you say that I am? Yet sometimes we really struggle, I think with Jesus as our king, because in our culture, we view independence as a virtue and dependence as weakness. So yes, we want Jesus, but so often we want him on our own terms. The problem with that is we don't get Jesus on our terms. 
Okay, if you want Jesus in your life, then you have to take him on his terms or not at all. And his terms are nothing less than recognizing him in your life as the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. Recognizing that you are totally and utterly dependent upon him as your king. Listen, it's very important here that we're clear about something. The fact that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is not because of anything that we do. It's not because we give him permission to be that. It's not because of our righteous behavior. It's not because of our own good works. Right? Jesus is the King of Kings regardless of what we do or do not do. In the Old Testament, we see Yahweh as the God of Israel, and on the Israelites' very best days and on their very worst days, he was still the God of Israel. Right? What changed, what changed from day to day concerning the Israelites' relationship to God was, whether, uh, was not whether or not he was God. What changed from day to day was whether or not they recognized him as their God. But either way, he was still God. And likewise for us today, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords over his people whom he chose in him before the foundations of the world according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.4. So he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords and nothing we ever say or do can ever make him any less than what he is. What can change concerning our relationship to him from one day to the next, however, is whether or not we recognize him as the king of kings and lord of lords in our own lives. Because you see, that, that recognition of who he actually is affects everything. Everything from the choices we make to how we go about making them, how we interact with him, how we interact with other people as Christians, Every single thing in our lives is deeply and profoundly affected by whether or not we recognize Jesus Christ for who he actually is, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in our day-to-day -day lives. So when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? He wasn't on a, a journey of self-discovery, right? No, he wasn't actually trying to figure out who he was. Jesus knew exactly who he was. The reason he asked his disciples that question was because he wanted to know if they recognized him for who he was. He wanted them to know not just what he could do for them. And look, Jesus is still asking his followers that same question today. Who do you say that I am? And again, he's not asking it for his benefit. It is for our benefit because he wants us to recognize him not just as a provider and a protector and a healer and a friend. He wants us to recognize him as the one who no one else can ever rightfully claim to be in our lives. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus the Christ. What we just so happen to have in our story today is a shocking uh, in fact, a highly offensive picture of what can happen in the lives of God's people when we fail to recognize who Jesus is in our day-to-day -day lives, as we will see 
as we continue our sermon series in the book of Judges where we've seen God's people at their very best and today we will see them at their very worst. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at chapter 19. This is where the Israelites are now at this point in their history without a judge to oversee them and more importantly they're without a king to rule over them. There's yet to be an earthly king anointed by God to lead them and far worse They've completely failed to recognize Yahweh as their true king at this point. And so the result is God's people attempting to rule their own lives without any true leadership. What comes out of that, as we'll see, is a fractured, ineffective, uh, truly a, a completely dysfunctional group of people who are supposed to be God's representatives in this world. This really should serve as a sober warning for all of us today about what happens to God's people when we refuse to recognize him for who he is, the king of kings. Okay, let's jump in the story then where we left off last time at chapter 19. We'll begin by reading the first nine verses. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And they brought, uh, she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, so he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning as he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. Tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. So the chapter begins with, in those days when there was no king in Israel. If you go back to the last chapter, you will find that that chapter begins with the very same phrase. Chapter 18, verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. If you go back yet another chapter, chapter 17, verse 6, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And if you jump ahead to chapter 21, verse 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every one of those statements either precedes or follows a lengthy description of something horrific that was taking place among the people of God. In fact, what happens in this particular chapter is so horrible that the, uh, the well-known 19th century British pastor and author F.B. Meyer recommended that people not even read the rest of the chapter after the first verse. 
He wrote, it will be sufficient to ponder these words. He's referring to in those days when there was no king in Israel. It will be sufficient to ponder these words which occur four times in the book without reading further in this terrible chapter which shows the depths of the depravity to which we may sink apart from the grace of God. Obviously, the author in these final five chapters of the book is trying to drive the point home that the reason for all of this tragedy and destruction and dysfunction among God's people, the reason that it's all happening can be attributed to the fact that they were without a king. They were, first of all, of course, without an earthly king to guide them, to command them, to inspire them, to lead them, to protect them, right? That's exactly what a good king, a righteous king, a capable king would do. And yet far more importantly, the Israelites failed to recognize Yahweh as their true king, the king of kings. And the result, of course, spells disaster, as we'll see. But first, in order to introduce these main characters in the story who happened, by the way, to be representative of all of Israel at the time, as we'll see, these nine verses describe the events leading up to these uh, nearly unspeakable crimes committed by the very people who were supposed to reflect the kingship of Yahweh in their own lives. And so we find a Levite who's going after his concubine who has left him. If you read it in the ancient Hebrew, it says that she was unfaithful to him. It's the Hebrew word zanah, which was typically uh, used to describe sexual immorality or adultery. But that is uh, most likely not what the word means here, because first of all, the penalty for adultery by a concubine under the Mosaic law was death, as we see in Leviticus 20.10. And yet this Levite, after waiting four months for his concubine to return to him, uh, he sets out to win back her heart. As verse 3 says, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. That little phrase, to speak kindly to her, was a common ancient Hebrew saying, an, an ancient idiom that was quite suggestive actually it referred to the language of love or the language of the heart so clearly not the typical disposition of a man uh, toward an adulterous concubine in the ancient near east and secondly almost every other ancient literature that we have concerning this text both biblical and extra biblical uh, or non-canonical non-biblical literature all of it points to a different meaning in this passage. The Septuagint, the uh, ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament reads, she was angry with him rather than she was unfaithful to him. I also took quite a bit of time this week reading several of the other ancient accounts of this passage. Uh, the first century Jewish historian Josephus, the second century Jewish Targum, the fourth century church father, St. Ambrose, many others, they all describe her as being angry with her husband rather than being unfaithful in the manner of committing adultery. And so in a nutshell, when you put all the evidence together, this man and his concubine probably had a blowout fight and she ran home to her parents' house. Then after they both cool off, he goes back to get her and of course, her father is overjoyed because in that culture it was a tremendous disgrace for a woman to be separated from her husband. And so the father-in-law lavishes this Levite with all the hospitality that was social etiquette for this time period and soon they're on their way. Just before we continue reading here, I want to point out one more significant detail about the opening of this story. 
which is the fact that none of the characters you'll notice are described by name. Right? We have a certain Levite. We have his servant. We have a concubine from Bethlehem. We have the girl's father. Later in the story, we're introduced to the old man and also to the men of the city. Notice none of their names are given. Okay? Generally speaking, when an ancient Hebrew writer would leave out the names of the characters in this type of story, it was to demonstrate the fact that this was not an isolated incident to be highlighted among just one family at a specific date and time. In other words, these events that we're going to read about were actually written as a representation of the profoundly depraved state of all of Israel at the time. Not saying this incident didn't happen as written, it did. But it was also representative of the entire nation of Israel at the time, meaning these types of sins and the depth of depravity that they represent were rampant among God's people at this point in their history. And just in case you think that cannot possibly be as we read on, just consider Genesis 19 because the sin of those men all the way back in the days of Sodom was almost identical to what happens in our story today. Keep that in mind as we continue reading and we see just how far from God's kingship his own people have strayed. We'll read verses 10 through 21. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a, a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and to spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. And the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. The old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your male servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. But the old man said, peace be to you. I will, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So the Levite and his concubine and his servant leave his father-in-law's house late in the day, and traveling at night in the ancient Near East was generally not a safe endeavor at all. So the Levite's servant, fearing for their safety, says, come now. Let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. But the Levite doesn't trust anyone but his own people. And at this point in history, Jerusalem was not held by the Israelites. It was actually 
uh, inhabited by a Jebusite tribe. They were Canaanites descended from Noah's son, Ham, according to the uh, table of nations in Genesis 10. And so the Levite refuses to stay in a foreign city. And so instead they press on to Gibeah, a city inhabited by the people of God, the Benjamite tribe. It's about four miles north of Jerusalem. And yet ironically, when they get there, no one will take them, this Levite, his own people, they won't take them or his family into their homes. Even though he's a fellow Israelite, not just an Israelite, but a Levite. Levites were supposed to receive special care by their countrymen because they had no inheritance of their own. And yet in sharp contrast with the hospitality just shown by his concubine's father, these Benjamites completely ignore him and his family. Of course, the one person who finally does take them in isn't even a resident of Gibeah, but an outsider, a sojourner from the hill country of Ephraim. Now keep in mind, these people in the story claim to be the people of Yahweh. And yet their lives in no way, shape, or form reflected his kingship at all. They recognized Yahweh as a deity, but not as their king. What you end up with when you have religious people, even very spiritual people who reject the rule of God in their lives, you end up with people who are predominantly focused on themselves instead of on God and on each other. You see, without a king, it's every man for himself. Without a higher authority that our lives are wholly submitted to, we rule ourselves. And of course, when the highest authority in your life is yourself, then your rule will always, ultimately, always favor yourself over others. It's why the American church today is full of believers in Jesus Christ who are so self-obsessed. Because although we believe in Jesus Christ, we're not always submitted to the rule of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we've become far more interested in what he can do for us than we are and who he is to us. We recognize him as our deity, but not always as our king, which is exactly what was happening with these Israelites, these Benjamites. They held others in such low regard because they held Yahweh in such low regard. But look, when Jesus describes the final judgment in Matthew 25, while sitting on his throne, he says to the righteous, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to the king. You see, if you hold others in the lowest regard, then you do not hold Jesus in the highest regard. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. You cannot say you love Jesus if you hate your brother. 
You cannot truly live for Jesus until you recognize him as your king, which is why he wants to know from you today, who do you say that I am? Am I just your provider? Am I just your healer? Am I just here to shower you with the things that you want in this world? Or am I also your king? Who do you say that I am? Do you simply want me as a part of your life? Or do you want me to rule over all of your life? Do you think you only need me in times of trouble? Or do you understand that you cannot take one more breath unless I say so? Do you come to me casually as you would any other benevolent friend? Or do you approach me with reverence and awe because I am a consuming fire? Who do you say that I am? You see, until we recognize him as the king of kings and lord of lords, we will always view him as something less than who he actually is, which is precisely why these Israelites were able to treat one another with such contempt. Because they saw Yahweh as a deity, but they did not recognize him as their king. And as a result, it was every man for himself. Let's keep reading verses 22 through 26. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. As the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And so as this Levite and the old man are eating and drinking, the local men of Gibeah surround the house and demand that the old, men, the old man send out the Levite to them that they may know him. Okay, the word know there was the normal Hebrew euphemism for sexual relations. So they've surrounded the house. They're beating on the door, demanding that the old man send their fellow Israelite, a guest in the man's house and a Levite at that. They demand that the old man send this Levite outside so that these Benjamites could forcibly rape him. In the 18th century, British theologian Adam Clark was translating scripture into English from the Latin. He left this portion in Latin out of modesty, which meant only the very uh, educated people would be able to understand the full implications of this wicked perversion of these Benjamites because he could not bear the thought of even expressing it to the rest of the church. In fact, he described these men in the story as rascals and miscreants of the deepest dye, worse than brutes, being a compound of beast and devil inseparably blended. Keep in mind, these men he's describing were Israelites. 
They're supposed to represent Yahweh to the rest of the world. But the old man refuses to give them the Levite. So the Levite seizes his own concubine. And instead of defending her to the death, if need be, he throws her to the wolves. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. Bible scholar Herbert Wolf wrote, One can easily see why the concubine had left her husband in the first place. She was virtually sacrificed to save his skin as the men sexually abused her all night. It's hard to fathom the depths of evil here. Not only by the men of the city, but by this Levite himself. The same woman he pursued just days earlier. The same woman he spoke tenderly to in order to win back her affections. The same woman he claimed to love. He now throws her away like a piece of garbage the moment his own comfort and security is threatened. How could God's chosen people fall so far? How could they live with themselves while committing such wanton acts of cruelty and sin? How? It's because although they recognize Yahweh in their heritage, they failed to recognize Yahweh as their king. And without a king, what is popular replaces what is right. Both in chapter 17 and chapter 21, immediately following the statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. It says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the standard for what was right was rooted in popular opinion rather than in the rule of God. I don't think, I don't think it is a stretch to say that we're facing the very same dilemma in our culture today. Right and wrong in popular culture today is increasingly determined by the will of the masses rather than the will of God. But that is exactly what happens when the highest authority in your life is yourself. You're then free to determine what is right, which means morality, righteousness, and truth become subjective so that everyone can do whatever is right in his own eyes. And of course, we can expect that from the world. We should expect that from the world. That's just the world being the world. But not from God's chosen people. When Jesus prayed for us, he prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 7. The word sanctified in that verse is the ancient Greek word hagiatso. It means to make holy. Jesus also said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. So the truth, listen, objective truth is Jesus Christ and his word, which is how we are to be sanctified, made holy through Jesus Christ and his word alone. Not by some kind of enlightenment through the collective conscience of popular culture, which is constantly changing, by the way. And yet that is exactly what we're seeing, even in the modern church today. A new and improved version of Jesus Christ and his word. One where no one is ever judged. One where no one ever has to feel bad about their sin. One where no one has to submit their lives to any standard other than the one defined by popular opinion. 
And all the while, Jesus is asking his own chosen people, who do you say that I am? Am I someone who came to make you feel good about yourself or someone who came to make you alive again? Someone who came to make you happy or someone who came to make you holy? Someone who came to be your, your co-pilot or someone who came to be your king? Who do you say that I am? If your answer does not include the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then what is right will always be defined for you by the popular culture around you. This is, this is just what was happening with the people of God in Gibeah. Let's finish the story then for today. Verse 27 to the end of the chapter. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So the next day, it says her master rose up in the morning which means he'd been asleep. So not only did he not go out to look for his concubine, he didn't even stay up worrying about her. He got himself a good night's rest. In fact, we're not even told if he ever had any intention of all of looking for her. But it just so happens that after an entire night of the most horrific abuse, she crawls and claws her way back to where her husband was staying. And with the last ounce of energy in her being, she grasps the threshold of the door of the house. Because even though she didn't have the strength to even stand or knock on the door, surely at some point her husband would at least open the door after the mob had left to see if she was still there. Instead, he went to bed. One of the real unanswered questions in this story is whether or not she was even already dead when the Levite did open the door the next morning. Both the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate versions of the Old Testament say that she was already dead when the Levite told her to get up. However, the Hebrew text is not at all as clear. It leaves, of course, opening the possibility that the Levite may have actually taken her home alive and then murdered her in a fit of rage and then sent her body parts out to the other tribes. The bottom line is we don't know. But either way, this Levite's behavior is nothing short of despicable. This is a Hebrew, an Israelite, a Levite, a man from the tribe who were to be the priests and assistants to the priests of Yahweh, the holiest of God's holy people. Honestly, if this is how God's people are to behave, then count me out. 
How can this man assigned to the ministry of the temple of the living God be so incredibly callous toward another human life and that of his own family? It's because although he recognized the religion of Yahweh in his life, he failed to recognize the kingship of Yahweh in his life. And without a king, we, we misrepresent the kingdom every single time. The fact is you cannot represent Christ the king to others if you do not recognize him as Christ the king in your own life. Listen, this is precisely where so many people have been turned away from the faith. Because they encounter those who claim to be members of the kingdom of God and yet live their lives according to the kingdom of this world. Right? So why bother pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ if in the end my life is going to look exactly like everyone else's who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, when we fail to recognize Jesus as our king, we fail miserably at representing being his representatives of his kingdom. Who would ever aspire to be counted among God's people if their only example was this Levite in our story? And likewise, why would anyone ever aspire to be a Christian today if all they see are religious people living like everyone else who is not religious? Who do you say that I am? You see, if you're going to represent his kingdom, then Jesus has to be more than just someone you believe in. He must be someone you're living for. Who do you say that I am? If you're going to represent his kingdom in this world, then your life must reflect his kingship, his rule in your day-to-day -day life. This is also why it is never adequate when people ask you about Jesus to merely rattle off all of the things that he does for you. Because look, as nice as that is and as true as it may be, there are many other things and many other kings in this world who can provide nice things for you. It doesn't have to be Jesus. Okay, look, when someone asks you about him, if you truly want to represent Jesus and his kingdom, then don't just tell them what he does. You tell them who he is. Jesus is my king. In fact, he is the king of all kings. Because there's only one king who was with the Father in the beginning when all things were created. There's only one king through whom all things were created. There's only one king who was sent by the Father to save us. There's only one king who could not be beaten by the enemy of our souls. There's only one king who conquered death and the grave. There's only one king who rose from the dead. There's only one king who ascended to heaven. There's only one king who is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of heaven. There's only one king who will come back one day for his people. There's only one king who will judge the living and the dead. There is only one king who will make a footstool of his enemies. And there is only one king who will rule and reign forever and evermore. Who do you say that I am? 
Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. one of my kids is introducing me to one of his friends I don't want to hear him say this is the guy who buys my food and my clothes he's also the guy who provides a place for me to live sometimes he helps me out when I really need something he's actually a very helpful guy that's who this is no I want my kids to say to their friends, this is my father. Why? Because there can only be one of me. And if that is who I truly am to them, then all of those other things can already be assumed about me. You see, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Because he knows that if you recognize him as the king of kings and lord of lords in your life first, then it goes without saying that he will take care of you and bless you and watch over you. That's why he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Okay, the point of all of this, the point of recognizing Jesus as your king is not because he wants to lord over you with a heavy hand. No, It's because he wants to know you. Jesus wants you to know him. Not just what he does, but who he is. Do you understand? The key to being blessed by Jesus Christ is to know him. The key to answered prayer is to know him. The key to receiving all the blessings that he promises his people, the key is to know him. Yes, he's a provider. Yes, he's a healer. Yes, he's a savior. Yes, he's a protector. And yes, of course, he is our friend. But he can only be those things to you if you know him. You see, the fulfillment of every single longing of our souls It all comes down to knowing Jesus Christ. Which is precisely why he asks the question. Who do you say that I am? Let's pray.